Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today on Relay Chain, we have our head of security at Parity, Kirill Pimenov. Uh, welcome, Kirill. Do you want to give a quick introduction? Yeah, hi. I'm Kirill. I'm originally from Russia, and I am originally a physicist. And then due to the very hard-to-explain course of events, I ended up being in charge of security at Parity here. I think that's similar to my background. <laughs> Not physics, but a strange course of events. Anyway, how did you like get into the Web3 movement in the first place? It's sort of like organically grown into it because I've been in like never in my career I wrote the copyright like you know sold for money copy protected software like that was a very important part of my career choices. I worked at the rather large European open source organization before Pirate Suzy Linux. And before that, yeah, I wrote certain bespoke code, but it was never like restricting other people's ability to use my code after I write it. That's sort of important for me. And yeah, of course, i concerned about like how web has grown more and more centralized for certain very foundational reasons. And uh, in the end, I think I mined my Bitcoin block in 2009 or early 2010. And that's uh, like, yeah, my first actual encounter with the cypherpunk movement. And I was wise enough to sell. So I sold that block for $30 per Bitcoin, I think, or something like that. And it was 2012 when the price reached that as far as I remember. And I bought a laptop like for the whole Bitcoin block. <laughs> and I was it, it was actually a pretty good talking point. Like, look, you think those digital monies are like just imaginary things, but like this is a real physical thing I was able to purchase without like any involvement of a real life funds at all. So this thing is real and it gives you the real power. It's like it ended up me smashing that laptop on the ground in like a half a year or something and it was like shattered. So <laughs> that sort of taught me that I should never ever try to speculate on the cryptocurrency assets. And since that time, I sort of disregard all the financial applications. Like they're probably important for people, but they're, yeah, I'm not the one to get rich out of the movement. And this is like not my thing to do. Yeah. How did you know from an early age that's, or not know, but like how, how did you know that it was important to you that you're writing open source software and never like proprietary software? I'm from Russia and like especially in 90s, there was a completely different way of looking at all that copyright thing and so on than in the maybe more Western countries led by the United States mostly. And in some sense, it just feels unethical to restrict the way people are using your ideas. And in the end, software is just like, yeah, me meticulously writing and dumping down my idea in a way that even computers now can understand it. So I noticed that, yeah, I use the software. I can see how it works from the outside, but I cannot look inside. And I sort of figured out that, yeah, this is not how things should work as well. And I believe my first encounter with Linux was the year 2003 or 2004. Not the best way to meet Linux for the first time, to be honest. Uh, but it was fun. And a couple of years down the road, was one of my friends said that he will switch from Linux to FreeBSD because there are almost no fun software problems in Linux anymore. <laughs> how did you make this abstraction like early on because it, it makes sense to me now that like software is an idea and that ideas should be freely exchanged but i mean that's an abstraction from like a, a concept and then applied to like something concrete like software and this was never obvious to me like personally when i like started my career like when i was in university and then like i went into like a proprietary work type of company and it became like that abstraction became clear to me later that i can apply now but like the abstraction was clear to you before you even made these like concrete career decisions? Probably that has something to do with how I learned to program computers, but I don't 
like I cannot point to any watershed moment that oh, that was the internal conflict which resolved in me having that relation. It wasn't like that. It's just like think about it. Like when you learn, you just yeah you tear away your toys and you figure out how they work and this is how you progress. And I happened to be lucky in a way that my software engineering education was always on par, almost like by chance. Like my school wasn't bad, but then, yeah, I figured out that I have certain skills and then certain, uh, you know, the competitive programming trainer put their eye on me. And I've at certain point had been in a team which ranked top 10 in Moscow in the ACM challenges and so on. And like every time you do that, like I sort of saw that, yeah, I know how to do this. I know how to do that. If I put a lot of effort, I might even write, you know, the fancy DOS program which will render the BMPs on the screen. But things more complicated than that, there is an enormous amount of engineering effort which I lack any ability to learn how it works because I cannot even look inside. So like, yeah, you have these fancy windows and you have those MFC, Microsoft Foundation classes, which you can use like just to call it and it will magically show you windows. And at a certain moment, it was like a huge disappointment of me. Like, yeah, I'm probably not, like, I'm definitely not a rockstar coder, at least not what comes with that uh, in uh, certain Russian circles. Uh, I'm not the, like, even not a federal level uh, competitive programmer, and I'm not that unique hacker with the products everyone knows, but I can do a thing or two. But then I don't know even how to approach writing my windowing library and my operating system and so on because all the examples I have in front of me are like ridiculously inaccessible and sometimes, yeah, especially then we come to the shareware software and so on, you know, all those traditions of obfuscating it. Uh, so that sort of like always was obvious that the systems I can look inside, they sort of contribute to my understanding much better than the systems I cannot and yeah, taking account that I believe that I first programmed the computer maybe in, when I was 10 or around that, uh, and I first encountered computer even earlier, I was lucky that my dad, of all choices, make a choice to bring with him the Atari XT from Germany in 1992. And yeah, like it was mostly games, but as you know, at certain point, you want to learn how to write a game. Yeah, uh, we we had a very different like introduction to programming. I think um, <laughs> my first exposure was to Lisp, and then my second was to C. And I just decided like I'm bad at this. I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I ignored it for a long time until I was forced to do MATLAB for a decade. Actually, like my school taught me some Lisp. Just as a yeah, and there are other concepts you might also want to learn. And I cannot tell that I understood the beauty of it then a days. Like I was able to do the tricks, but like still like good old telling computer what to do in which particular order sort of trumped it because let's uh, be honest, it's super pragmatical, especially when you code a small scale, just doing A and B and C is like the most straightforward way to program with computers. But uh, as I said, like only praise every programming teacher from me being 13 to me being 20. And those like were my school teachers, couple of uh, people I managed to hang around with in the university, but also that probably quite notable in Russian uh, communities uh, magazine about uh, like literally called Hacker and uh, nowadays I believe it's a little bit more you know the button down the bug track like yeah those are the bugs and this is how you like write a certain exploit sort of thing and then it was like to a certain degree a cultural movement and like the underground social movement and yeah I can say that to a certain degree I liked that attitude as well uh, it's a little bit like the hackers movie, but like meeting the reality. So it's like much more boring and much more sparser community. But at the same time, yeah, they managed to build a certain culture. And I believe like if you will ask any Russian software engineer, they've been at least somewhere on the orbits around that culture. Yeah. So like, let's move forward. There's a lot of like open source stuff. There's like other 
like privacy preserving technology that's open source or free software. Why are you working in blockchain in particular? Because I believe this is the field where money meets engineering with the least amount of intermediaries in some sense. And we sort of see that it works. Uh, yeah, like it, the most common complaint about the blockchain space is like, yeah, like 80 to 90% like just go bust without any result at all. But basically any other industry have similar or lower level of efficiency when allocating capital, just it's isolated from your eyes with hedge funds and banks and so on. But I don't believe that there are any other like high yield enterprises which have significantly better rates of uh, allocating capital into the real results. In the end, it is super liberating to work with engineers who have direct access to like funding and customers without so much of an overhead of like, you know, the institutions which want to puppetize them to dance the certain dance. That's like, obviously, Silicon Valley is, if you just talk about access to capital without any other ifs and buts, this is the way to go. And like all that venture capitalist dream and so on, it is absolutely like allows you to do incredible things, but it comes with so many strings attached. It comes with so many, yeah, but you should only do that if you have this in mind and you need to aim to those particular business outcomes. And this is just not my way of working on things because I like to build things which are permanent. I like to build things which stay. I sort of find my own internal drive in thinking about like what will happen with this development in 20 years. And venture capitalist-backed engineering enterprise is all but that. It's like, don't have an outcome to build a decent but minor shard of a human's uh, civilization. No one is thinking about that. Everyone is trying to build monopoly. That's basically the only way you can promise to venture capitalists that you will return the uh, money 10 times. It's just you are building a monopoly. And this is not what I want to build, like both from the exchange of ideas point, but also you don't have any other outcomes. So like if you don't, if you fail to build monopoly, you just go bust. And this is not how I enjoy working because there are like 90, 95% chance that whatever that will be will go bust and that it will just, yeah, everything will be in the huge heap of uh, compact disks under the truck, which tries to like, uh, uh, you know, homogenize it in the ground. So no one ever will see, look at it again. I had my certain experiences with like, yeah, taking uh, capital to build my own thing somewhere in Russia. And I'm not quite happy about how that developed. Like I I made some mistakes also, like generally, I believe, just didn't work. And that taught me a lot about like, yeah, I'm not going to chase the dream of, in some sense, the whole thing about the Silicon Valley is that get incredibly rich promise. It's that's American dream. It has sort of the same rate of not being uh, universal, like only selected few get rich, but they get rich incredibly. And yeah, like, you can see that pattern everywhere, like Hollywood dream, the same thing. Like most of the actors just like work as waiters and they just try to pitch you their acting talents while serving you coffee. But uh, some of them succeed and that sort of make it worth for everyone else to try. And there are like most of other dreams work the same way. Uh, I believe in the Freakonomics book, there is the chapter about like most of the drug dealers still live with their parents. Because, like, they live sort of the similar pattern of a dream. Like, yeah, there is a certain people who succeeded at being drug dealers and they have, like, all the fancy things and they are doing that with an incredible level of showing off. And this is how everyone else is underpaid. And really, they would be better on other profession, but they are promised the riches and they're chasing it. I believe this is what Silicon Valley is all about right <laughs> now. Uh, and... I like that blockchain space, at least the, that slice of it i mostly exposed to, is not about that. I like that, uh, at least maybe this is a Berlin thing. Maybe this is like, yeah, European thing and in the US it's slightly different. But like there are people who are 
honestly concerned what is the track of a civilization progress and how they can contribute. And they're mostly like dismissive about like where to get money for that because, as I said, the access to capital is, yeah, it exists. It's probably much harder to build a new operating system right now than to build a new blockchain because it will be so much harder to find enough resources to back that research up without strings attached, as I said. And another big thing about the blockchain, like it is probably the first actual non-military application which pays people for doing math. And we suddenly realized that there are a lot of brilliant people who are willing to do math if they will be paid enough. And I really see incredible progress in there. And we are swiftly becoming able to do things which were thought like out, like right away impossible. And yeah, it's obvious thing is a zero knowledge proof, but there is a lot of progress in the homomorphic encryption, in the opaque proxy re-encryption techniques. There are like a lot of principles, protocols, and so on, which are occurring because finally someone is not disregarding mathematician as a person who will do their thing no matter if you throw money at them or not. <laughs> yeah, I'm part of that trend. So this is a nice place to work. Yeah, so when you talk about like what we are building versus what we're not, what does like a decentralized system mean to you? Because there's like decentralization is kind of this vague word, word. So like, what do you think we are trying to build? Yeah, like there is that saying that the thing you're supposed to decentralize is power. And uh, actually, there is very important article about moral character of cryptographic work. I think that's a pretty famous article. And if you have some show notes, we should put a link in there because yeah. Yeah, it's also by a rather prominent cryptographer. So like the, by the person who knows what they're talking about. For example, like if you have any encrypted hard drive, it's using the XTS uh, encryption mode designed by the same person. But the idea is that in the end of the day, all the cryptography is about telling apart people who can do certain things and people who cannot. And it is not neutral in terms of like being moral. You can either add more to the strength of the powers will be, or you can add more strength into the hands of people who are not yet empowered. And this is, yeah, in the end, cryptography is allowing you to compete against uh, national state with all their surveillance machinery. That's like super exciting. And this is like the change we probably need because no one wakes up in the morning and says, hmm, we need more stronger national states in the world. This is how we will win. <laughs> because we, in the end, yeah, we've seen movies with, as a civilization, we thought about that. And we decided that probably this is not the way to go. I, I would say there are people who, who believe that though. No, they want their national state to be national state and they want everyone to be in ruin, uh, everyone else. And I believe this is regardless of what is my attitude to that fantasy. This will never happen because like if you strengthen one, you strengthen them all. Once again, there is, there is no way of telling correct and incorrect, like properly behaving and misproperly behaving actors. This is not a technical issue. This is like why all the backdoors are never going to work, like, you know, the state-mandated backdoors and so on, because they assume that we build a system which reliably tells apart good guys versus bad guys. And this is not an engineering problem, and because of that, it doesn't have any engineering solutions. So just in principle, it cannot be done. And if you empower, I don't know, uh, your shiny city on a hill, United States, there is no way you are not empowering, uh, you know, the uh, Korea or China or whatever is your scary, uh, like, country of the day thing. What you can do is, like, you can tell apart different classes of actors by the way they interact with the system. And this is why I said, like, you can either build a crypto which is only feasible for the national states and then it strengthens their power grab, or you can build systems which are not super useful for national states, but they're super useful for everyone else. And yeah, like, blockchain is a strong 
attractor for people who've been living the lighter. That's super cool. Do you only differentiate nation state versus individual, or, or do you think there are other entities in the world that? Oh no! Like uh, absolutely! Like this is just two opposites, which are quite obvious, and because of that, it's easy to imagine if you never thought about that. But of course, humans form very different systems and like every individual is part of a multiple systems and this is how it's all exciting and uh, of course you can distinguish between those systems and on the way how they operate like how they operate mostly offline how they operate mostly online and then you can build a system which favors like offline communities in contrast to online ones or like are they even like awake all at the same time or are they like going into the offices in different time zones and then those will be like synchronous versus asynchronous systems uh, in the messaging in the key exchanges you name it and yeah like there are very many ways you can identify and differentiate uh, systems comprised of humans. And yeah, like basically when you're building a system, it is moral responsibility to give it a thought, like it changes the power outcomes. If it's not, then it's like, you know, no op system. It's not doing anything. No one will be using it ever because it doesn't change anything ever for anyone. So, and if it changes, then how and for whom? And I am absolutely, like, it is clear for me that we all suck at doing that, but it's worth at least try. Because, like, if you think about the current state of the centralized internet, in some sense, this is just a very long result of the way IP protocol is designed. Not only because of the address, like the very trivial way there, like, yeah, we need NAT. And because of that, we split hard between people who can allow data centers and people who cannot allow data centers. And then only like if you are in the plebs, you can only speak to the data center owners, but not to your other peers without special technical rain dance. This is sort of obvious, but this is not the major thing. Major thing is that in some sense, IP protocol itself is hierarchical. You know, there are those network masks and basically all the routing is based on that. And it's hard for me to point the finger when that like decision entered the space because like original ARPANET vision was the absolutely mesh-like network. But if you think about how IP-based routing is working, this is not a thing for mesh networks. It is like every provider should know the upstream or maybe the two uh, HA balanced uh, upstreams. And then you have downstreams and they're in some sort of like vessels of yours. And this is what we have now. If there's not like a, a technical like place you can pinpoint of how we went to this direction, like what like underlying principle do you think led to the internet becoming this way? Like I just put the IP because... If I would be designing IP, like protocol IP before, I will do something more dumb than those people did. They are much smarter than I am. But I don't believe that anyone at that point would be able to predict, like, look, this, like, changes the power relations in a way that favors huge telecoms, like state-level telecoms, and it uh, favors the big companies and monopolization because they will be able to cut the non-network neutral deals with the providers and so on. Like This is direct result, but it is not direct enough so you can predict it. And other thing is, yeah, like generally the modern legal framework around all the intellectual property, like I'm doing the quote signs in the air right now, uh, because like being proprietor of an idea is like, as I probably already mentioned, it's quite odd for me, but the whole framework is built around that notion. And this is what, like, this is how Facebook, for example, came to be. Facebook only exists because at its early stage, it was able to use legal defenses against people plugging into the Facebook ecosystem without Facebook explicitly approving that. Yeah, in the end, this is what you do to build a monopoly. And at certain point, we, like, I'm not blaming any, like, individual country because that's a very collective movement that we somehow decided that monopolies are good again. 
we had that with the Ost Indian company and so on. And after that, we sort of get our concerns about like, is this the best for the humanity in the long run? But now we, like in most of the countries, we are governed by the very simplistic understanding of it's like, is it being used to gouge prices right now? If it's not, it's probably fine. And now, like the problems with monopoly are much bigger because in the end, they not only make you poor, but they make you have less say in how systems develop. And in the end, yeah, we all now in a rather complicated place regarding the social processes and what is fairness and how to do that. But I believe not in the least part we arrive there because we build the monopolies in a way that they disenfranchise individuals. And this is why, once again, going back to the question about like what's good about blockchain, yeah, like I believe it has a certain mode of re-empowering people. Yeah, this gets like a couple questions ahead of where I was, but like when we compare not just blockchain, but any kind of like digital society to like offline or incumbent societies that already exist, how do you compare these and like what does blockchain enable in the digital realm? I mean, you're talking kind of talking about like user agency within the system that like um, you can't really do anything to influence what a monopoly does. You don't even really have the choice to go to some competitor because by definition, there is no competitor. But it's cheap. Yeah, (laughs) but it's cheap for now. But like, how do you envision, how do you envision like these decentralized societies or like, I don't know if, I I still don't know if society is the right word, um, but like organizations or institutions taking shape where users can have this kind of influence over where it goes. There is only behavioral difference between offline and online societies. In the end, humans are sort of doing the same human thing in there, just they are being provided the framework of doing that in different ways. And because of that, we get the different outcomes. But I believe that especially when the systems are new and draw, it's super exciting to see how people find out really creative ways of use and abuse those systems to better suit what they societally think like it's needed, like invention of a hashtag. It wasn't something which product designers and the Twitter came up with. It was like people started to use it because they had search, but they wanted to tag topics. So there was the emergent social movement of tagging topics using this particular way of marking it. And if I am not mistaken, it was like only later on they were becoming clickable and they were be, uh, like getting the special handling in the Twitter and then they were adopted by other uh, places, networks, you name it. But at first, yeah, this is just, we want to have this way of organizing information and we have a very raw medium. So we will figure out and build out our own hacks for us as a community to thrive. And this is, once again, only was feasible when Twitter didn't have enough power over people. And the more and more Twitter gets entrenched, the less and less of that fun experimentation and so on we see it because it stops being a raw medium and it wants to dictate you how to consume it. That is like both because they are Silicon Valley company in the chase of a monopolist position. But this is also because, yeah, they're just a big institution which doesn't have any counterpart. Like there is no bargaining position for people who use it. And you sort of like backtracking a bit and you saying that it is cheap for now. I don't believe this is relevant at all. And I believe that being a serf is cheap. Like it's never been expensive. This is why focusing on the prices of monopoly is like absolutely wrong. This is not what it's all about. It's about like if you are like in a position which allows you abuse and you are not a moral individual, but you are like a profit extraction machine without like they are amoral in a sense that the moral compass is not feasible in the organizations. Uh, it is only feature of people as far as we understand it now. Uh, So yeah, you will do the decisions people, even people you are composed of, they will disagree, but you will still do that. And we see that in Google, in Microsoft a lot. 
I guess this would be like the separation of, say, like members and decision makers, where like you could be a member of the Twitter community by using Twitter, but you don't have any decision-making power within the organization. I think it's more complicated than that. And I think it's rather interesting to think about those uh, power dynamics because uh, in the end, there is, I don't think anyone will argue that there is an emergent behavior in companies and they become entities which are bigger than just aggregation of their parts. And in that sense, they select the decision-makers which better suit their like Moloch-like interests. And in the end, if you are like one of the leaders in the company and you cannot do those man-eating decisions, then you will just get displaced. Like one way or another, not because someone there higher up will decide, oh, no, you are toothless enough and you need to go out and we will hire someone who is really an immoral shark in your place. But just because organical processes in those systems are not taking your morality in like decision at all, but they take your roughless efficiency in the equation and so roughless and people without moral restraints, they're sort of winning their position as decision makers. Maybe locally, they're not necessary. I'm not telling that CEOs are selected to be the most immoral bastards of the world. Uh, in contrary, like CEOs, not necessary even the major decision makers in all of those cases. And that's what I'm talking about. Like every single person in the organization might think that what organization is doing is immoral, but unless there is a parallel organization exists inside of the one, there is no way they can collectively realize that will against the will of the system they compose. It's a little bit like, yeah, the cells of your body might have their own opinion about like how should they treat the COVID, but you still get that terrible inflammation in your lungs. Yeah, so you think this is like more an inherent property of powerful centralized institutions? For profit, yes. If yes. you optimize for profit, you get absolutely immoral profit-constructing machines. Uh, this is why I find it's a little bit uh, funny when people talk about the general artificial intelligence and, yeah, the AGI is scary because it will optimize for paper clips and it will kill the whole uh, humanity. And I believe that we have those paper clips maximizers right now. And the only thing which saves humanity from being turned into a paperclip by the Paperclip International Limited is that basically we are inefficient at certain scales. Basically, if you build systems from humans, there is a certain threshold. And if you overcame it, you become like, you basically collapse. It's a little bit like, yeah, dinosaurs only grow this large because they just will collapse under their own weight. And this is why we need to be super careful when we're building things on the blockchain. Because in some sense, blockchain is just a better coordination system and it will allow us to have bigger organizations without being dysfunctional. So like if you think uh, about United Nations, uh, how they're probably the hugest system com composed of humans on the uh, globe. And you can clearly see how they barely not collapse under their own weight. And if we can make the systems of the same scale efficient, we can do a lot of great stuff. Because like, yeah, like if United Nations wouldn't be even 1% dysfunctional and will be like completely deliver on what it promises, which I don't think anyone will disagree that this is not happening because bureaucracy, because the decision-making process is being too long, because the information not being uh, in the place it's needed at the time it's needed and so on. Like, you all work in any organization. You know all those programs. Now multiply that by 100 and you get the largest organization in the world. And if it wouldn't be the case, we could build wonderful things. I don't know. My personal like worry about humanity is that we disregard death as like something we can fight with. Like not individually, not like I'm going to wrestle the Grim Reaper and I'm going to win. But we are really like compare the amount of effort and thought and people's lives we put into fighting herpes and we put in fighting death and uh, being old and all those things which are really, really, really so scary. People try not to think about them. It really feels like 
we making a huge mistake and we can improve our lifespans and we can like live longer, happier, more fulfilled lives. And we are not doing that just because it's really, really hard to come to that decision. Again, like every individual on the earth is shit scared of death. And they probably would be very eager to join an effort to counter it and eventually probably even win a fight over it forever. But there is no coordination system. There is no nervous system for that organization of humans to emerge. And because of that, yeah, so far there are only fringe groups, which, yeah, they, they actually do quite a lot. But this is absolutely not the scale of effort we as humanity can dedicate to that. And yeah, I believe that in the end, blockchain is one of the possible approaches where we will learn how to build bigger, more resilient structures out of people. But that comes with a drawback that like this is a double-edged sword. And the other edge is, yeah, we are also going to empower existing monopolies, like state-level organizations, be that like, yeah, there is, if you read any cyberpunk books, you know that there is no difference between uh, Google and nation states and so on. Like, there is still some difference right now, but we are moving full speed ahead to the future where it's not. Yeah, and if you really like Neil Stevenson as much as I do, then there is also like religion and ethnicity and so on. All those things are also at certain heights of uh, at certain zoom level, they are completely indistinguishable. So we're, if we're talking about like super large organizations and much larger organizations than exist today, which could even be like, could include like federations of organizations of like a Google type scale. Do you think that like the lower, the lower friction of interaction, like lower bureaucracy, I guess like what do you think that enables? And yeah, what, what are the risks in that? Like can a system that's architected to be decentralized end up corrupted because of like one entity's profit motive? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And not even the profit model. Like, we really, especially like now in the informational age, we haven't seen anything other than commercial corporation, mostly. Like, it's either nation state or commercial organization. And because of that, we only seen certain abuses of power and certain dynamics in how like structures behave. But if you look a little bit deeper in the history, you see all those, uh, I don't know, holy orders or like federations like Holy Roman Empire, which are built on completely other, like otherworldly for the modern age principles. And they have emergent behaviors, which are absolutely not what we see right now. And we will get that a lot. And I'm not sure we as humanity will be able to deal with that without drama and without uh, like certain challenges I cannot even point my finger at right now. But yeah, that probably will happen. I don't believe that will be the major change at the same time. It's probably the same as with like, yeah, general encryption debate. There are two camps and one is putting the, yeah, encryption is just liberating people, which helps you to fight the big brother. And then another camp is like, yeah, but uh, people are generally nasty and we want to prohibit them from going dark on their nastiness. And uh, I think that generally you need to do the certain weighting exercise. You need to every time... Yeah, I see those behaviors emerge. I see this behavior emerge. And then we are sort of making a judgment act. Like, do I want to publish my research? Do I want to contribute to that project? Basing off, like, yeah, do you think that the total social progress which privacy will bring in our world outweighs that certain bad people, whoever is the bad people in your current definition are? So if those benefiting those b uh, bad people will outweigh the social progress or not. But I guess like from your, from what you said earlier, that like the idea that you can own an idea, like the, the core principles that ideas should always be shared. So do you think like research like this should always be open? This is not exactly what I think. And yeah, because of that, thank you for asking this because I now have ability to clarify it probably even for myself to start with. I don't believe that 
every idea which comes to your mind worth being shared and then reproduced. I don't believe all ideas have the same standing in this sense. I believe that there are ideas which, when being shared, might make our, our world better, and there are ideas which might make our world worse. And this is absolutely like orthogonal to the should you reap all the benefits of an idea or should that be given to the world. And yeah, if there is something which people share, there is something people are using, there is something people are building on top of that, that definitely should be, in some sense, being a foundational infrastructure of the way our idea space is constructed. So like if someone starts, like everyone should be able to build on the previous ideas which are out there. But for you to put the idea out there, yeah, there should be some checks and balances. There should be certain, like, doubt. If you don't have that doubt, you probably, like, this is a tough topic because people, very frequently I observe people using engineering as an escapism. And, like, only today I've been reading that thread about, like, uh, Go community discussing, is it okay for Go to put the Black Lives Matter banner on their uh, website of a project or not? And there are a lot of people who think that what they do, like, even then they are promoting ideas, they think that they are neutral. It's not only in the engineering, like it's seen in the engineering a lot because I don't know, somehow we're conditioned to think about like, yeah, I'm just inventing bridges and I shouldn't care if I invent tank bridges or pedestrian bridges, but I believe you should care. And I believe in some sense, the engineering community, the general engineering community sort of understands that. And I believe that software engineering community is not because we are so fresh of a discipline and I think we will get better in this. And I believe that if you have an idea, there should always be that doubt, like I'm putting that out. People are starting to build on top of that. What would that world look like? And if there's something I want to have as, I don't know, my legacy, my children live in, something I want to see when I grow old, like put your favorite metaphor in there. But if you don't have a doubt that probably certain non-technical parts of the like upbringing are missed on you. And I cannot relate too much to the other cultures and other countries, but in the Soviet, post-Soviet uh, uh, systems of upbringing, that was pretty deliberate. Like it was engineered in a way that builds sort of like obedient technical people, people who are not thinking about the ethical choices. And this is why it was so of a shock for the Soviet powers that people like Sakharov stand it up against it. What doubts do you have about the technology that we're building now? Generally, I think that we are a little bit short-sighted most of the time, and we are mostly building monetary systems. And this is, yeah, you're given the book with, like, notebook with lines, and the if only thing you can use it for is to writing who owes you how much money, that sort of, like, tells us about you, not about the book. I believe the digital ledger technology is the same. Like, if you can only build systems of monetary exchange on top of that and not something else, that's sort of, like, not about the technology, it's about like you like not being creative enough, not being lacking certain insights about what other human projects are out there in the world. And yeah, like that's closely related to me talking about the upbringing and non-technical components in the technical engineering creative process. Being exposed to other people, being exposed to other ways of life, being exposed to other struggles, uh, all that, I hope, will help eventually for people to come up with much better, much more creative ways of, yeah, and then decentralizing power. But why decentralize power of banks if you can, I don't know, decentralize the power of ICANN of the domain names, or you can decentralize uh, the powers of the, like, those few commercial scientific publishing establishments and you can replace that with some sort of uh, scientific rankings on a blockchain with uh, publication and sharing systems assigned. That would be awesome. 
There is a lot of entrenched interest in there. There is a lot of discontent uh, against that entrenched interest in there. And we see that with things like C-Hub and so on. And at the same time, I see the same. Like every individual scientist, like maybe this is only physics and computer science. I'm not that much exposed to other fields. But I would assume that the same is happening. Like every individual scientist is not happy about paying Elsevier. But at the same time, they lack any way of joining the efforts and building a parallel system which solves their problems while not being like totalitarian in some sense by not putting the authority in the hands of a very few. And that will be super interesting. And I don't know how to solve that. But that just yeah sounds like a really good application of a blockchain which will have zero to do with money. Yeah, I- I read about like an interesting study about grant funding in academia and that like if you give say like you're basically taking all these professors time to like pick out like one or two out of a hundred projects that should get a grant and people are very accurate at predicting which ideas for a grant are bad. So you can pick 10 and say, yeah, these are stupid, like they'll never work, throw them away. But of the remaining, say, 90, you're basically rolling the dice about like which one or two you're going to pick. There's no ability to pick out one over another about which is worth a grant. And so you end up with these kind of power systems about like, well, out of those 90, the one or two that gets the grant is really going to be like whoever has like the best in. And it's it would be more effective almost to just like randomly distribute these grants, uh, like randomly select the pro- process. Oh, yeah, it's... Like, that is a pretty valid uh, observation. Like, in that, like grant allocation is not efficient, but there are all, like, publish or perish is a big system, a problem, systematic problem, or the problem where you, basically, if you disprove certain previous results, you don't get that much in your career as if when you propose new results, even if they will be disproven later. And that is especially in the like health sciences and less formal scientists uh, is a huge problem as far as I understand. And uh, this is because our incentives, they have never been designed. They've been just yeah, the system which rewards you for doing scientific work it has like organically grown in a certain shape. And now, build, like, if someone will ever build a parallel system, they have all the wonderful knowledge, which also like happens to be around the blockchain space, about building the incentive systems for provoking people to do to behave in the way you prefer them to do to behave. And yeah, it's sort of like economics and game theory and just like, yeah, straight away cryptography again by prohibiting people from doing certain things. And that is really like, it is not even the thing which I found the most exciting, like on the tech field, but you asked what would be the really like breakthrough blockchain project. And this is what came to my mind right now probably can name like three, four, five more, which will be the same exciting. The problem is that, once again, those organizations will have nothing to do with finance. So if we only ever concerned about like, yeah, will we able to get our like investment back? You will never back anything like that because there is no money to be gained. Or like, yeah, there are like people who are trying to build fair and distributed social networks. And they also struggle with the same thing. Like, there is no money to be made. And because of that, how do I pay for all the engineering effort, which I probably would need to do that? Yeah, I wanted to follow up on something you said earlier about, like, having just financial ledgers be a, a representation of you know, the people designing them more than the technology. But, like, we talked at the very beginning about, you know, like, VC-funded companies and a lot of the engineers there might not necessarily have so much influence over what they're building. They're just kind of like implementing this thing that's been funded. And that's that's how these companies get built. And blockchain kind of lets us bypass that whole thing so that the investors are, are kind of like investing directly in the engineers and they're kind of building this. Do you think just that structure in general leads to people building financial applications um, over other types of applications? No, not necessary. Like probably the best systematic answer would be just to look at what share of uh, venture financing is going to financial technology versus non-financial technology. I don't know exact numbers, but I would just 
from the ceiling, I will read like five, ten percent is the fintech, and everything else is not. And I believe that VC alone is not enough to steer people in like only building the financial related things. It's also simple. I wouldn't fight with them. And like some of the simple problems there are not yet solved. Like we are getting close, but we haven't beaten the central banks in providing the predictable stability. And that is something to be solved. Like we haven't figured out how to build the financial systems people will actually be using, like in terms of both UX and reliability and certain expectations, because what is promoted as the biggest achievement of a blockchain, like irreversibility of a transaction, this is at the same time something which subverts the people's trust into it, because like once you transact, you cannot call your bank and say, oh, I changed my mind. That was a fraud. Like I got tricked into that and you won't get your money back. And that makes it more risky for many categories of users. We cannot build system out of our like idealistic stubbornness. Uh, like we can, but that will never end up great as we probably need to be more receptive to what those people care and this is not yet solved problem. I cannot give you the solution, do X, and then you have everything in check. But we need to think about that. We need to think, like, even if you build a financial system, like, how would you accommodate all those needs of 99% people who are not interested in whatever blockchain brings to you in particular, like that financial freedom? Like, the probably would benefit from it, but they're not interested in that. It's the same way as I would, I don't know, benefit from people finding a cure for a rare disease, even if I don't have one. What do you think are the trade-offs when it comes to decentralization and security? Because like you just kind of hit exactly on it that like if you decentralize some system, it's maybe like the system itself might be less fragile or less vulnerable to some to some failure that can ruin it. But then a lot of the individuals may be more vulnerable, like you can't recover your transaction. You have nobody to appeal to, really, if there's an error. Like, how do you balance that trade-off? I believe that we can never build a fair system without humans in the loop. Like, not like we cannot do that because we don't know, but I believe this is a rather fundamental property of our, like, environment, our universe, uh, to the, like, if I will go for a very, very wide stretch, like people will hate me, but I will still do that. And like there is the arrows paradox of choice. Like you cannot build a absolutely fair preference system, which means that you cannot make a decision-making system without politics involved. You cannot build it without tit for tat. You cannot build it without certain human, like very unformalized ways of like just settling certain interest conflicts. Uh, there is no fair universal preference function which you can just apply to individual preferences and have an aggregate preference which will be better than any other possible outcome. And I believe that in the end, these wetware solutions should be kept in the loop because otherwise you will, yeah, you will get another inhumane, amoral Moloch, which will try to consume everything it touches. So this is like the political version of like uh, Godel and like incompleteness. Mm, I struggle to tell you exactly like is Arrow's paradox is an application of uh, Godel's incompleteness or not. Uh, my intuition says no, but I cannot prove it. And probably that's something which will take me a couple of years to reason <laughs> about now. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, But that is probably also something we know in the, you know, the ethics and studying of a societal preference and so on. Like you cannot build a universal like fairness system. You cannot build an ethical system which will be universal for everyone in the society and so on. You need to reconcile. You need to make trade-offs. You will leave some minorities non-happy or majorities non-happy about the status quo. And then you will just bring in another decision which will now reconcile with them. And this is like a forever emerging process. And it might feel like it's inefficient and unfair, but in the end, it is the most fair way of doing those things. And I don't know any other. And this is why I'm not scared about 
general intelligence of like a human level and superhuman level, it will be just doing the same reconciliation faster. And I'm much more concerned about dumb intelligence being there outside of a human supervision, uh, like making sometimes life and death decisions, like when like automated weapons making choices to kill or not kill people. And of course, any military will try to move people outside of a loop because that's a very fragile and that's a very like latency-inducing part of it. And at the same time, any autonomous weapon will be unjust and will kill people we find not justified to be killed. Any autonomous created scoring system will mistreat certain minorities. There is no way around that. They might not be like existing minorities. They might be like, I don't know, people whose left shoe size is larger than their right shoe size. You never know, like you cannot predict that. But I believe this is a fundamental property of our universe. And, you know, that's rather non-scientific speculation that are we living in simulation? I think, like, first, yeah, this is absolutely non-falsifiable, so it doesn't make sense to even think about, like, are we or not? But it is funny to think that if we are living in simulation, we are living in simulation which the simulators built to figure out how the society with Arrow's paradox will evolve. Like, because, I don't know, it is easy to imagine the global harmony society in the world where math works a different way and there is a global universal perfect preference. And then it will be like so much more orderly, so much more f- like probably fair, but like it's hard to even imagine because that is not how math works in our world. And every time you tell me about the universal preference function, I think like, yeah, and it will mistreat certain people and there will be marginalized communities occurring from it. And yeah, so that's some sort of a cruel joke the universe is playing on us. There is no universal fairness. You can just strive. You can never be. I think we should end on a joke. maybe. But I do have some closing questions that I got from some other people at work. Who are your role models? Hmm. That's like both surprisingly abstract and surprisingly applicable question because like, yeah, it's certain moment in my life, I sort to spend some time learning the, you know, that NLP fed, like the neuro-linguistic programming, and they use the modeling as a very applicative skill. Like you pick up the role model and you just sort of learn at some, like, you know, not the theatrical way of pretending to be them. And that is supposed to give you the certain skills of those people uh, never actually works as far as I'm concerned. But like uh, that just brings this question into a very practical field for me. But I would rephrase it then in a way, who are the people I really like the way of thinking of? And yeah, like easily comes to mind Richard Feynman and like his awesome yeah, his uh, course books are also awesome and everyone should read them, at least the intro to the first part, because it can be read without any scientific background whatsoever. But there are all those, you should be joking, Mr. Feynman books and so on, and they are like the most scientific, non-scientific books you can ever read. I don't feel that all those less wrong societies are that exciting and they are the way forward for the multiple like internal reasons, but there are some quite bright people you can learn from. And yeah, Yudkovsky guy is rather interesting in the way he thinks. And sometimes I wish I would be able to think more like him. And sometimes I'm like, oh no, this is going into the direction I really don't like it. And this is basically why the general question about role models doesn't work for me. Like, Certain aspects I would definitely like, yeah, exchange right now. Like, here is my money. But uh, certain aspects, like, no, uh, that will either compromise what I have as in my own identity or that will just, yeah, make me the person I wouldn't like to sit in the same room with. So, Yeah, well, I mean, this is going more into a, a psychology discussion, but... Um, yeah, my I, university diploma has that. I already <laughs> said that. <laughs> People are not just like one thing. And so I, I think you can have role models about like certain aspects while not identifying with some other part of that person. I mean, people are not like one-dimensional things. You can have 
people that you look up to in some respects and disagree with than others. And then tomorrow everything changes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is why what is your favorite color and what is your favorite dish are my like most hated questions ever and like the certain time frames in the school life were really tough for me because I was never be able to make up my mind on anything like that and like the, your environment when you're 12 expects you to have a clear answer. Yeah. So you don't want to talk about what your favorite book is then? Mm, I think I will use this as a offer to just recommend people to read the certain books. And I think, yeah, I'll start with Neil Stevenson's Diamond Edge. That's a really terrific book. Like, it is not easy. It is hard. Uh, it is certain hard fun, like beating the meat boy or other like experiences which are both frustrating and fun. Uh, but yeah, it probably it did a lot in the way I think about education, for example. All right, we'll end with that. Thanks, Kirill. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter.